We've got airlines, housing, and we need to talk about your wardrobe, too. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Thanks for joining me once again this week. Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, let's start with housing, because it is not just the price of gas that is falling across America. According to monthly data from the National Association of Realtors, sales of previously owned homes fell nearly 6% in July. Uh, there are a few different ways we can go here, um, but uh, one thing that caught my attention was just from the standpoint of people who are looking to buy houses. Um, it's been a challenge the last couple of years, and even with prices dropping, first-time home buyers. You look at the data, and it, it's—I don't want to say they're getting squeezed out, but they are making up a smaller percentage than they historically do. Typically, it's around forty percent. In July, it was just under thirty percent. Yeah, it definitely feels like as time goes on, um, it, it becomes more and more difficult for that first home purchase right i mean i think i'm sure you and i can look can look back in our lives and remember when we you know made our first home purchase i mean that that's a big purchase obviously it requires a lot of resources it requires a lot of frankly education and understanding the process and what you're getting ready to commit yourself to um, but but it's just it financially it's just becoming more and more prohibitive and it, it from the first-time homebuyer's perspective, I mean that's really frustrating. You feel like you just don't ever have a chance. Now, on the other side of the coin, there, if you're a homeowner today, you're feeling really good about things. I mean, the homeowner uh, themselves, homeowners themselves, are in are in really a good position uh, because we're seeing a a still a limited supply, right? I mean, I think everybody would would. Pretty much agree that right now we we are in the the middle of a housing shortage here domestically. Uh, we need to see new homes being built. The problem is obviously is is the economy uh, continues to face challenges. The interest rate environment continues to rise. Uh, we're seeing home builders canceling. Uh, those home builder cancellation rates have more than doubled since April. Uh, I think if you look at July, you saw 17.6% of builder contracts actually fell through. That was versus uh, 8% in April. And if you go all the way back to July of 2021, 7.5%. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is a very difficult climate for, for folks to commit to buying a home. And I don't know that we should expect that to change anytime soon. Um, and then you top that off with existing home sales data, which is obviously falling as well. I think we saw nationwide 63,000 deals I saw quoted on existing homes fell through in July. That was about 16% of the homes that went under contract. So you can imagine as a seller, you feel like you've got this thing locked down and ready to go forward, and then that deal falls through. Well, that's going to be pretty frustrating for both parties involved. It's just a, just a very difficult market right now in in, uh, in regard to housing. From an investing standpoint, what? How does one invest confidently in residential housing right now? Is it through the home builders themselves? Is it through sort of the the businesses that operate in some ways on the margins of the housing industry? 
So I, I personally, I mean, I think home builders are absolutely one way to do it. Now, I, I think you said invest confidently, and I think that when it comes to home builders, that can be a little bit more of a, of a volatile ride. And I think a lot of that just has to do with the kind of data that we're seeing playing out here today. So I absolutely agree that home builders are one way to do it because because typically, I mean, when when you have a shortage, you you need to you need to make up for that by building more, and and that would indicate that the builders should be seeing some action here in the coming years. Now they they've got to deal with the. Obviously, supply chain constraints. They've got to deal with the rising interest rate environment. They've got to deal with inflation. I mean, it's 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 a little bit of a tricky time. So I think confidently, I I personally just like more the the home improvement and in, in retail sector. So you look at your the Lowe's and Home Depots of the world. Uh, to me, I feel like that is probably a bit more of of a reliable. Safer long-term play, right? I think at least you can buy into those businesses and feel like you can own them indefinitely because they benefit from virtually every condition. I mean, if there's a shortage, then you got people sticking in their homes and they're doing more stuff to their homes, right? I mean, if you look at uh, Home Depot's results they announced earlier this week, pro sales outpaced the do-it-yourself consumer sales in, in the quarter, right? And so that's just an indicator that there are home improvement projects that are happening. Makes a lot of sense. The home the homeowner is in a great place equity-wise. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to go ahead and open that home equity line of credit or take out that home equity loan and and finance that project you've been wanting to do. It, they benefit rain or shine, right? It, and so I, I do feel like there are a couple of different ways to, to do it. And I think having exposure to all, uh, you know, and home builders and, and the, the improvement space makes sense. Um, it feels to me like the improvement space is probably a little bit, little bit of a steadier ride than, than the home builders might be. U.S. Airlines got $54 billion in federal aid during the pandemic, and a condition of that assistance was that the airlines were not allowed to use the money on share buyback plans. That ban is going to end on September 30th, and now the airlines are starting to do better financially. The unions representing pilots, flight attendants, and other industry employees are now publicly urging the airlines not to resume buybacks when the ban is lifted. I have to say, if I were a shareholder of Delta, United, American, South, I think I'd probably say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it goes to show you the difficulties in in running a publicly traded company. You've got so many stakeholders that you have to appease, right? And and it, it's not always it's not always going going to be going to be in line. They don't always line up with each other. Um, it, I, 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 I agree with you. It feels like to me it could be argued that there's a very sound there's a very sound uh, argument here for 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 holding off on those share repurchases. It does feel like, from a headline perspective, it sure does look it's, it sure does look like the airlines are are having a difficult time right now dealing with. Their businesses, right? I mean, the customer experience just doesn't seem like it's been all that stellar lately, and it's for a number of different reasons. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, it it ultimately means that these these airlines need to focus on making sure that customer experience is is as as good as it can be. Um, 
clearly you got to make sure that your employees are happy as well. Now, I mean, it, it can be also argued that the airlines just simply aren't getting these share repurchases right in the first place. Now, I, I will I will go ahead and preface this by saying that I know I know some folks love the airline space, feel like there's a lot of value there, a lot of opportunity there. I'm not one of those people. I don't like investing in airlines. I don't own any airlines. I have a hard time imagining that I ever will own an airline. Um, and and I feel like there's just plenty of data out there really to back that up. I mean, perhaps there's perhaps there's a value investment there at some point or another. And if that's your cup of tea, then then that's great. But for me, when I'm looking for businesses that I can just buy and hang on to, like airlines, just do not fit the bill. And when you look at the way the bigs have performed here recently, their share prices, their repurchase plans. Um, it, it just isn't lining up, and I just want to look at look at a few examples here, right? Let's look at look at these big these big names in, in the airline space. Delta, they've spent close to five and a half billion dollars on repurchases since 2018. Okay, you go back five years, five and a half billion dollars on share repurchases. Now their share countdown is their share count is actually down close to 10. percent Now that's great. That's what you want to see, at least when you're making those repurchases. The whole idea there, bring that share count down, and ultimately. Make those shares outstanding a little bit more valuable. Now, even Delta shares are down around 22% over that time stretch. But then, when you when you look at the other three, look at United. They've spent close to five billion dollars in repurchases. The share count is actually up. Shares are down 40% over that five-year stretch. Look at American. They've spent around three and a half billion dollars on repurchases. Share count is up. Their shares are down 66% over that time frame. Look at Southwest, one that we've always kind of looked at as, as maybe a little bit of a disruptor in the space and in, in, in focusing a little bit more on that customer experience and looking out for shareholders a little bit more. So they spent around $6 billion in repurchases over this stretch. That share count is up and those shares are down 24%. So they're kind of they're kind of not really seeing the the long-term impacts of of Spending on those share repurchases, and so I think when you look at that data, um, it 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 really does it really does I think uh, bolster the argument that maybe these guys need to focus on something other than share repurchases for a while. They can get their house in order, get that customer experience back in order, and get their financial house in order. Then then you you can get back to returning value to shareholders through these repurchases. But maybe for them, the better the better focus is just. Focus on that on that reliable dividend policy. Give people some cash in the pocket, and and, and you know steer away from the theoretical impacts of share repurchases because clearly it, it's not it's not helping them to date. Yeah, it's the question we ask all the time, regardless of industry, regardless of the business. When there's a share repurchase plan, we always ask, like, okay, is this the best use of the, this capital? Yeah, exactly. And in some and, cases it is, but in others, it's it. Like, you just look at the track record; it's just not. Yeah, and it, it, you're right. I mean, it does. It, that's the question you need to ask: Is this the best use of this capital? And I mean, look at something like a Berkshire Hathaway, right? Everybody's argued for the longest time they should pay a dividend, and you know, Buffett and Mugger are like, listen, that's that's cash that we feel like can be put to better use. Whether it's repurchasing their shares because they have such an intimate knowledge of their business operations, or or investing in, in other other opportunities. I mean, it just it doesn't seem like to me when you look at the airlines, they've got so many problems. That yeah, it just doesn't feel like share repurchases are the wisest use of that capital. And I mean, you also look at it going forward. I mean, I think it was the recent legislation, right? The 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 Inflation Act here that there's going to be a one percent tax on share repurchases. Now, I think if I'm correct here, I believe that's a net. Tax, right? So it's going to be it's going to be net of shares issued, right? So it's not just like 
whatever they've repurchased, they, they're going to be taxed on that. It's net of shares issued as well. So that's a little bit. That's something to remember there. So uh, it, that's that's something else to consider at least is that these share repurchases are going to get a little bit more expensive um, as as the cost of doing business, so to speak, goes up. But but yeah, to me, no question with airlines, it just doesn't stand out as the best use of capital. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. You know that pair of jeans you like? Did it have any previous owners? For an increasing number of people, the answer doesn't really matter. Asit Sharma and Deidre Wooler discussed the growing trend of secondhand fashion and the challenges and opportunities for the companies involved. I'm Deidre Woolard, and I'm here with Motley Fool analyst Asit Sharma. We're going to talk about the boom in secondhand retail. Hi, Asit. How are you today? Hi, Deidre. I'm doing well. Good to be with you. Well, let's get into this because this is a category I'm fascinated with. I see it as this real growth area for investors because we've got some long tail demographics that support it. So, when when I was growing up, secondhand was profoundly uncool. Nobody did secondhand. Now. Resale is booming, and one of the emerging leaders in resale, ThreadUp, they put out this report every year. I love it. It's on the overall market. I mean, of course, they're going to say resale is booming because they're ThreadUp, but but it also has a lot of facts from other places. And they forecast that resale will grow three times as fast as the overall apparel market globally, and it could reach 82 billion in the U.S. alone by 2026. So that just kind of blew my mind a bit. I, there's this whole shift going on in secondhand clothing, and Asit, what's going on with the younger generation here? First, let me say, Deidre, if that market is so massive, $82 billion in just a few years, why do we need to invest in tech, right? <laughs> just invest here. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've thought about this a lot over the last few years. I think um, you're a little younger than me, um, but we know we're approximate generations, I think. And there, there are lots of trends that are coming together, different from when we were younger. I think this younger generation um, it tends to be more attuned to the effects of climate change, to waste, to social inequality. They're a much more socially conscious uh, generation. Let's just say millennials all down. I'm, I'm lumping a lot of generations together. So these are all types of ideals that tend to benefit a circular retail economy. And we've also seen over like gee, the last six or seven decades, as we've moved really gradually from this post-war industrial economy in the 1950s to what we have today, which is a consumption-based economy, this idea that what you wear is like the first signal of social status um, has really dried up. That pull that you've got to have the nice new pair of Nikes, although people still love Nikes, or um, crisp clean brand new clothing that's no longer quite as important today like what you wear today especially on social media signals many things like it's your potential wealth status but it could also signal how creative you are um, the things that you like it can signal uh, to other people likeness and we saw some of these trends play out over you know many years it's just i think social media amplifies the, the many virtues that clothing can have. So, um, these trends together with one more that I think is really fun, 
are, are partly to explain that third trend is this experiential aspect for the youngest consumers, so even younger than millennials. These kids love to thrift. In fact, the, the idea that today we're talking about the word thrift as a verb takes me back to like the late 1970s, early 1980s when I was a kid wearing bell-bottom jeans. I love that, bell-bottom jeans. Um, so I wanted to think about that because okay, so you've got this this really big thrifting market. It's kind of moved beyond those like store racks that we used to shuffle through uh, back back in the day when I was looking for like that that perfect like slouchy oversized blazer. So I like the idea that we've got resale as a service, and this has kind of come up in the last couple of years because all of these retailers watch all of their clothes go into this secondhand circular economy, and they're like. Well, wait. Can can we get in on that? And so they're starting to, and they're partnering with uh, companies like ThreadUp, but they're also partnering with some. There's some big private services that are white labeling this, and it's really interesting where we're going with this. It's kind of this thing that's called a circular economy. So like ThreadUp, they're partnering with. Gap, Madewell, Tommy Hilfiger, Eddie Bauer, all of these big brands. And all these brands are now saying in their stores, like, we have resale as a service, or you can even turn in your clothes. Is, is this what we're going to be doing in the future? Instead of like taking that big bag to, to Goodwill or, or something like that, we're going to be like, hey, here are these jeans I bought three years ago. Gap, take them back. Well, I want to return to Goodwill by the time we finish this segment. There's something very interesting there. But you know, we're sort of headed gradually in that direction, Deidre. On the surface of things, it's so much easier today, because of technology, to get a very nice pair of secondhand jeans. So the idea that they have to be new, due to the technology, the distribution um, that is every day, if you drive along the highways, becoming more and more prevalent. That our capacity for logistics and warehousing as a society, all of these trends play into the fact that we might be trading our clothes around in the future. And I also like uh, some trends that aren't as visible. There are companies that are focusing deeply on making fibers out of sustainably based sources, recycled clothing. Um, I know Levi's, uh, of all companies, is redesigning its iconic 501 jeans to include a fiber called circulose. So there's that circular term in there, um, which itself is made partly from recycled denim and organic cotton. And credit to uh, a publication called The Sourcing Journal from where I learned this. But a lot of it may not even be visible to the naked eye. So there's certainly some interesting trends of the idea of fashion becoming more circular and less of the fast fashion uh, type of uh, production of, of brand new clothes, rapidly getting them to outlets. That seemed to be a really prevalent trend just a few years before the pandemic. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that because, yes, on one hand, we've been seeing that happen with fa fast fashion. On the other hand, we're seeing companies like Shein get like go crazy. And so there seems to be this weird sort of thing that's happening. Two things are happening at the same time. We're see we're still seeing a lot of fast fashion and yet we're also seeing this growth in recycling. And I, I find this fascinating. I think so much of it is is driven by by social media. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about where these industries are going, because right now it's not it's not looking good. It's it's tough. Resale profitability has been really tough. 
ThreadUp has announced layoffs, and uh, you know, there. Different companies are really struggling with profitability, and I think part of that is because there's so many different models. You've got different business models, right? So, like we remember the old-fashioned, the thrift store, the secondhand store, and there used to be the consignment store where that was for the fancy people, where you would bring your your fancy fancy items in and and consign them. So there, those those sort of models are kind of being brought on online. So you've got companies like. Poshmark, uh, Depop, which which Etsy bought, those are heavy on that sort of social shopping model. It's it's very asset light. But then you've got a company like the Real Real, where you have to send the things in; they have to be consigned. ThreadUp, where you've got these massive, you send the bag, and you've got that that whole process where they're bringing all the clothes there. How is this going to work out? These, there's so many different business models, and maybe none of them have quite figured it out yet. I like this characterization of figuring it out because this is exactly what both private and publicly traded companies are trying to do as they build out their businesses in real time. You know, resale has always been a tough business in the fashion world, um, but it can be a lucrative one if, if you can find that magic formula. What's challenging companies with an inventory model is that they've got the inventory costs associated with that. They have to handle the inventory. They have to separate it uh, on some platforms, you know, like ThreadUp. They have to present it to the potential buyer. Then you've got the fulfillment costs. Those just eat up the bottom line. Then. On the non-inventory model side, you have a really tremendous marketing and advertising expense to have that social element get promoted. Then you've got the customer side of it, which is enticing people uh, to engage in what's a you know modern-day side hustle. It's something that, for those of us who want to clean out our closet occasionally, might have some attraction, but the cost of keeping um, the the customer side, the the supply side as well engaged, is also a cost that gets distributed all up and down the P and L. It's it's hard to see, but but this is part of it. How do you keep people returning to a platform? How do you keep uh, people wanting to to sell their clothes and and others to keep coming by to see if there's something new? So all of these problems that you would face in a physical environment are sort of exacerbated online. And it's so interesting, Deidre, I mean, you look at the ThreadUp, Poshmark, the Real Real, uh, they all have expanding gross merchandise value, so their platforms are growing, they have expanding revenue. It's just that they have not yet found that magic formula that produces positive free cash flow and profits. Not to say that these are bad models or they're not going to succeed. But uh, you have to be a patient investor if you're starting with this. Those really nice um, thread up reports, which I too have been reading for many years, they show a market that itself is growing, you know, with potential in excess of the actual business models. And, and lastly, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. They're the unspoken giants, which provide this. Uh, competition in the marketplace, Goodwill and the Salvation Army, their thrift stores, I mean, they get their inventory for free, right? <laughs> we drop it off, they put it in their stores. And um, that's a massive marketplace that always presents uh, you know, a quick and easy um, and lucrative shop, uh, shopping outlet for many people who may not even have the time to, to poke around online.
Well, yeah, you mentioned something really interesting there because you mentioned the word side hustle, and that is that is something that is also a huge part of this because we saw that we're starting to see that with you've got you've got the poshies, the Poshmark people, they go to Goodwill, they go to the thrift stores, they won't tell people which thrift store they go to because they because they know it's a good one, and so they'll they'll get them and they'll resell them there. So you've got you've actually got a resale market within the resale market, which just <laughs> just kind of blows my mind. Uh, you know, I, I'm right now. I'm taking kind of a basket approach early on with this, with ThreadUp and the real, real stock prices are low. It's it's going to be an unsteady and un and potentially unprofitable business for a while. Is, is that kind of what you think about this space too? I mean, yes. I think you just gave listeners the right approach, Deidre. I love your approach. I think for any kind of theme in investing, it's you know a waiting game. So whether this theme, let's look at 3D printing years ago, or the metaverse, which is a big investment theme today, or uh, resale, uh, secondhand fashion, each one of these themes is going to take time to play out. There will be winners, there will be losers. Your best bet as an investor, if you're really interested in a particular theme, I mean, if if resale and the circular economy just grab your your mind, your intellect, and your your passion as well. Um, don't jump in with all your capital. It, it's a long-term game, and you'll have time to see which models start to succeed. And, and if you uh, do this sort of regularly, you'll also get some new opportunities as new companies come public, either you know through their own IPO process, or as in the case of Depop, you know which you mentioned, which was acquired by Etsy and gives you an avenue to invest in that. But yeah, I I would make no changes to your approach. I'm trying to do a little bit of that myself, dabble a bit here there here and there while prices are low. Awesome. Well, thanks for chatting with me about this. Let, let's continue to keep having these conversations every couple of months, because this is going to be an interesting one to watch. For sure, Deidre. This was a blast. Thanks so much. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.